0: This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In podcast network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Welcome to episode 30 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host, as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is Professor Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello, everybody. And tonight we've got a very special guest as we are joined by the free time International Horror Guild award nominee, Mr. Tom Carnell.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Well, it's great, Tom, to obviously have you on, and obviously tonight we're talking about uh, Lone Wolf and Cub Sword of Vengeance, the first of the long-running uh, saga both in terms of the manga as well as the film series mm-hmm. um, and this is a pick that uh, from Stephen which really surprised me because obviously Stephen isn't one of myself who comes up with the trashy picks and you come up with the classy picks so mm-hmm. we've kind of swapped roles for this week
2: I throw one off <laughs> <laughs>
0: um but I mean for yourself for people who obviously aren't familiar with your work I mean you're obviously uh, a writer you're a genre critic uh you're a former embalmer it seems like this huge long list of uh job titles that you've held and uh as i said you're still obviously out there you're pulling out putting out uh, work you've given already given us the ufc with zombies which is no flesh shall be spared uh you've got your short story collections like string of pearls and uh, obviously your new book that you're working on at the moment so what do you sort of like uh Classify yourself, as you say, because, I mean, you, as I said, you're a man who wears many hats, it's safe to say.
1: Yeah, I've uh, always just considered... I got into this as a fan, um, going to cons and waiting in line and, and you know, just back in the day when, when conventions were just starting to be a thing. And it just seemed a natural progression to... Uh, put my, it was right around the time that the internet was happening, so um, it just seemed natural to put my thoughts about whatever on online, which led to the uh, the conceit of thinking I'm, I could be a writer. But it kind of happened. We we kind of went through a side door in a weird way with um, by getting into uh, self publishing back in the day, like early nineties, before. Before, um, it, it was really a thing uh, back when zines were a thing and Xeroxed sort of letters and, and reviews of things and people were putting out. There used to be a magazine called Fact Sheet 5, and all it did was review small press zines. So that's how many there were. But with Noctin, we, Kat and I, my wife, uh, we came at it from a different angle where we just we wanted something beautiful and classy and and pretty and we wanted interviews that were in depth and informed um and uh there wasn't anything out there at the time you know we were delivering our book to on big side quest cartridges to printers and um hoping that they would finally run the job we had one situation where the guy opened the file looked at it and refused we had we had deadlines we had Commitments and he just refused to run it because he was a Christian. So, all oh, right, okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's not really going to work for anybody. So, um, we did that, and then that led to me meeting Tony Timpone, which was really important. Tony gave me a job after Carpinoctum ended with Fangoria, and then by then I was in the stride, right? I had already done and and was just, um, really hot to share. I still am. I mean, you, I've, you've seen my Facebook feed. You, you you see what that's all about. But I just like to find things and share them with people and go, look at this cool thing I found, and then hopefully it'll hit them the same way it hit me. Usually usually that means you know movies or books or music or what have you.
0: Well, I mean, you're certainly not someone who does something by half. I mean, where most people sort of did the 10... The ten movies that uh, resonated with them. You've gone. You're currently in the midst of your 365 days of movies which resonated with you. Before <laughs> yeah. that, you were doing. You were writing. What you were looking at a movie a day, for like 300. I was things.
1: reviewing a movie a day. I was yeah. watching
0: more. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, you did that for two years straight. I mean, <laughs> I'm yeah. still watching a movie a week. Never mind a day. So,
1: yeah, that's it. Speaks to my OCD, right? <laughs> <laughs> But that that I'm I'm very happy doing that. Like when I I'm coming up on something, 30 days of uh, music that means something. That those kind of things are fun for me too. And once again, it goes back to that idea of like, hey, here's this cool movie that that you you, know, you may or may not have seen or heard of, and I'm going to give you. A, a Hart Fisher called them bite size B Y T E bite size reviews. Um, and it's like I'm not going to spoil anything. I'm just going to give you a general interpretation and all of those and most of the reviews I write are they're not constructed they're just I watch something, I go to the computer, I sit down, and these are what this is what I think about. this is what I thought of the movie or the book or what have you. Mm.
0: I have to obviously ask then, how do you get past the desert island syndrome? And I know it's something anyone who does, anything say, been out there into the into the world, and especially when you do these things like the thirty days. I find it like if I wasn't getting one responding, then it's sort of like it feels like you're talking to yourself. So, I mean, do you ever worry that you're putting these things out and nobody's reading it, or do you just you just put it out there for the love of putting of just creating things?
1: Well, as my wife says, I'm much more, ha- I'm happier talking at people than with them. <laughs> <laughs> so no i don't worry about it at all because especially on the website if everything goes on the website for a while there i was putting things on facebook and twitter and that kind of thing and they would just be lost they would yeah. here's what i thought and they would just kind of be lost and then i got the bright idea to sort of start warehousing everything on the website and making the website really dynamic um and uh no i don't worry about it i think that uh It also helps crystallize my thoughts on the particular piece of work that I'm considering, right? Um, When I'm forced to put them into words, I can't shrug and go, yeah, it was kind of grooms, cool. I I have to think and go, okay, given that, and, and now it's not unheard of for me to watch a movie with a clipboard in my hand, right? Scribbling little tiny notes and even if they're just notes to myself. Yeah, it just speaks to my desire to, to, to you know, uh, it's a wonderful life, man. And you're finding, I'm finding things all the time, and they come across my desk, and it seems just a shame to not share them.
0: Well, and certainly looking at obviously when we, as you said, looking at your warehouse, so to speak, that is your your page. I mean, you've got you've catalogued everything that you do on there. And mm-hmm. it kind it of helped but feel the sort of pangs of envy when we look at back and we look at things like the Bonus Material podcast, which you did like 200 episodes with Langley, and before that with like mm-hmm. and Sean, and I mean that's itself. I know you obviously finished with Bonus Material, but it's such a wonderful chunk of chunk of uh, like genre material there just to dive in and out and just again, it kind of fulfill the pangs of envy when we look at the people you've had on, uh, people you obviously, and you often get me on Facebook especially and it's like, oh yeah, here's a picture of me and Chuck Palahniuk. Here's a picture of me with George Romero. I almost got bit by like Chuck Planick and it's like, oh yeah, I
1: uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: well, <laughs> I got I, two I, salt I, packets I, my Chris today. That's about as excited as my life gets. <laughs> so.
1: But you know, it's it's part of that. It, it was going, it was going to the cons, it was good Going and having to do set visits and stuff for uh, when I was living in Southern California, you know, going to all of that stuff is right there. So you can just kind of go to go and hang out. And, um, you know, we've been doing this since the mid 80s. You know, it's been a while. The nice thing is, is that, you know, some of these people I would consider friends. So um, that's kind of groovy. Um but mostly it's for me it's mostly about the work it's about it's about um if I wasn't doing a if I'm not doing a podcast if I'm doing a book like right now I'm in the middle of a edit on the next short story collection, and I'm ripping through that half of it's already gone to beta readers to see what they think so yeah, it's all both feed in right okay, and
0: obviously with the short story collection, I mean what can we obviously going to expect from because certainly. Over the of the years, I mean, you've done readings on Bones material. You've put, as I said, you put bits and pieces out there, and I mean, it maybe been recently more sort of short story collections rather than than full length novels. As like you did, but obviously no flesh shall be spared. Um, right. No flesh shall be spared. Really, absolutely enjoyed it, and I urge everyone to go out and check it out because as I said it's it's UFC with zombies, and it's yeah. that twist on zombies that I mean, I
1: shoot a, I shoot a seven year old in the face. <laughs> well that's a
0: selling point for you.
1: I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Um I'm pretty open about the fact that you don't get to a lot of my subjects without cannabis. So that helps. Um and that's where like with the with the that's where things like clown town come in from yeah. uh, Moonlight Serenades, where it's a world defined. your social structure is defined by what kind of clown you are. So Yeah, yeah, that of course that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I just did. I'm working on a piece now of a child that's born um, with a Midas gift, and that is every time she touches someone, they die. So there's that. Um, What else am I working on? I I took recently took. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and did a mashup with Apocalypse Now. That's on my website. Um, And that's fun. (laughs) Uh, Have you seen
0: Apocalypse Poo? Say again? Have you seen Apocalypse Poo?
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. They uh, mash up Winnie the Pooh with Apocalypse Now. Something about that movie that goes really well with everything.
1: This is uh, Hermie the Dentist looking out on uh, Santa's workshop and saying, the North Pole, shit. I'm still at the North Pole. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. He's he's charged to instead of killing Colonel Kurtz, he's charged to go kill uh, the Winged Lion on the Island of Misfit Toys because he's operating without conscience. <laughs>
0: uh so I mean, when it comes to obviously putting these stories together, I mean, are you drawing inspiration from any sort of particular things, or is it just a case of Wow, this would be like a really fun idea to explore. What if we did? What if these two things were put together?
1: It usually begins with me laughing at the idea uh, or being given myself a challenge. There's a trying to remember even the name of it now. Um, there's a story in one of the books about uh, the the, pr- the challenge was tell a story and literally spin it on a dime on the last sentence um in the tale and so i wrote a story about a little girl lost in the forest and finds she meets this old woman this old mountain woman who keeps her safe and that kind of thing and then at the last moment i'm not going to tell you what that is but on the last moment they spit it spins to be something else so usually my process is uh twofold number one does it make me laugh uh number two uh maybe more than twofold uh number two Once I have the ridiculous idea, a world of clowns, everything else I work and research on to try to make it, it all has to be real. It all has to convince me that this is happening, right? If if my premise is that zombies are back from the dead and there's a weekly sports program where people beat the shit out of them for our entertainment – that's fine, but everything else has to be real. The fighting has to be real. The anatomy has to be real. The, the weapons have to be real. So that's a lot of research and a lot of tapping into friends. Like I've got uh, – John Edwards is my gun guy. I've got another guy who worked DOD and uh, – guy. When I need to know about explosions, I call that guy. So it's all about that. And then once I have the idea and I think it has legs – And then I torture myself to do a first pass. I always equate writing a story or a novel to building a house. Your story is your foundation. Uh, Your first draft is your framing. And then as you go through, every time you go through the house, you're adding something, you're taking something away, you're sawing bits here, you're sawing bits there. And by the time you get to just adjusting picture frames, you're done so it usually takes two or three passes from the initial pass for me. And it's all letting the seams out, uh, initial passes, bare bones. And then we just start, I call them balloon passes. So we bl- let that moment breathe a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. let this moment breathe a little bit, um, figure out the logistics. Oh, there's a lot of fighting in my stuff because there's a lot of fighting in my life. Um, but, uh, make that super real. I used to have Langley and, and some of the other students in, in in the class that we were taking um, be stand-ins after class. I need you to stand here. How does this work? And I would stop it. I always refer to it like a uh, exploding schematic, if you know what those are, yeah. where you yeah. can stop the motion, explode it out. And then like, I can walk inside of that and look around and that's where you can find the weird, metaphor right or the weird thing that sort of makes it work and then hopefully you can keep that up until the end
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I mean obviously you mentioned that in terms of like fighting and stuff I, mean, I do have to say it's, it's because it's martial arts infused and you, so not that you like going out and cleaning the streets up or something like that is, is that right
1: yeah yeah I've I've trained martial arts since I was a kid and um then I got married and took a break, and then in my 50s I went back. And around that time I met Langley and another person, Kathy Holmes, here in Bellingham, Washington, where I live. And um, Kathy was teaching Muay Thai, Langley was teaching knife stuff, and that's what we've been doing since then. Yeah,
0: so I mean, certainly whenever we see things that touches things like uh, the night comes for us. My mind, as soon as someone brings out Knives, and certainly when it seems more sort of prone when we look look at films like The Wraith and uh, those sorts of films where it's obviously like Knife and Knees, like the specialist fighting stuff, my mind instantly goes to you, Tom. Oh, thanks. Sort of okay. like, it's sort of like, I know Tom somewhere it's like going to kick out of this. So. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fun. I, I, It's weird when you talk about it with people, but uh, I've just... Um, always been fascinated by it, it's a big chess game to me um, and when I found Indonesia and the Philippines then everything changed because now it, it took it out of that realm of of um, kata and and points, this is like uh, Edgar Salit who, who's a grandmaster used to say never leave until they're cold and it's like Yeah, that kind of puts things in a different perspective. It's no longer about it's a given that I'm going to I better be in athletic because I need my win. I I need this for that. You know what I mean? Um, And I'm not going to I don't I'm older now and I don't want to have to fuss with compete. I'm not I'm not going to compete or any of that other stuff. So now it's just about let's find really fun ways to, you know. (laughs)
0: <laughs> to, to maim each other is it, okay. it
1: yeah yeah well and then people like langley's are great because they're just throwing gasoline on that fire you know and they're like oh yeah that's a great idea let's work it out <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. yeah i love this stuff i, I always have okay
0: well, obviously when it comes to Asian cinema where's your sort of entry point into it i mean you're coming up watching like the kung fu movies or is it like, where's your sort of entry point into, uh, into Asian cinema that obviously is carried well, across?
1: Well, I remember going to see uh, uh, Five Deadly Venoms when it first came. They, it was the first, like, kung fu saki movie that I'd ever played where, around where I grew up in Silicon Valley. I'm, like, I remember going and seeing, like, you know, Chinese Connection in the theater the first time. And every, everyone afterwards running around and doing the ki and and kicking and, you know, just being so charged up about it. So that, uh, David Carradine's Kung Fu, that kind of thing. About the time I was in my, excuse me, about the time I was in my teens and started to delve into cinema, it was like one of those things where... Um, Well, I like that stuff, so I guess Kurosawa is where where to start, right? And so, you know, after things like Kagamosha and that kind of thing, you're like, all right, I'm hooked. For a while there, I was training sword, so the Japanese stuff just exploded. I used to go to a Japanese culture cinema, it was called, in downtown San Jose, and rent VHS tapes to to take things home because it was the only way you could see stuff like you know, early like Jackie Chan movies and, and, you know, the first time you ever saw like a Zadawichi film or something, you were just blew your mind. And by the time you get to things like Razor Hanzo, it's your mind's just dashed. So, um, I loved it. I, my mom was the big American Western fan. So the, it, the, the, the drag of it felt familiar. And, um, it appealed to – I grew up with without a father, so it appealed to my sense of moral right and wrong because it was so cut and dry. It's like this is clearly – these guys are clearly bad guys and they deserve to be sliced up in the streets.
0: <laughs> Very nice. I mean, obviously, with the mention of uh, Bruce Lee, I mean, it obviously gives an entry point into one of the key – news stories of, uh, of this week. And Stephen, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Um, Shannon Lee, daughter of Bruce Lee, has obviously had a bit of a rant, shall we say, in the uh, press about uh, Quentin Tarantino's portrayal of her father in the new film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She sees him as being portrayed as a caricature, and the fact, he's, in the film he's portrayed this sort of, like, hot-headed um, egotist who gets beaten in a fight by... Um, Oh, what's his name? Brad Pitt? uh, Brad, Pitt, Brad Pitt's Aging Stumman, and the fight itself being this representation of old Hollywood versus new Hollywood, and the two sort of styles uh, clashing there. And she's very unhappy, not only the fact that this Bruce Lee character gets beaten in the film, but also how he's portrayed. And for myself, I mean, i have just obviously going off conversations with yourself, Tom, and with Langley especially, uh, where... In the past, I mean, she signed off on Bruce's likeness being used to talk everything from cleaning products to booze to that awful tacky medallion. And yet here she has this problem with this.
1: They just released etched glasses. the Dragon etched glasses. Yeah. Of so, course she's mad. Of course she's mad. It's her it's her payday. You're 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 pissing on her payday. It's always been that way. You know, I don't. I don't hold the JKD Foundation in a lot of high regard. Um, I'm a Dan guy because I think Dan took the ball and ran with it, and the rest of it is just it's like the non-productive Zappa Kids, right? <laughs> <laughs> they're they're super watchful of who gets to use Frank's music, but I I don't know I think that that Shannon, oh I was say uh, Shappy's just happy. Shannon's just happy that. Someone's running the story, and it says, Shan, "You know, Bruce Lee's daughter, Shannon Lee." Blah 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 blah. So you, right.
0: at the main, I mean, there's a lot of obviously the the press there, obviously sort of running with it and siding with her. And at the same time, I've got people obviously who are sort of like more sort of genre fans, people who obviously in there's sort a of community and that is sort of like have disliked her and called well, her any number of things. <laughs> to be honest, I, I, so
1: I don't know why we're discussing what what's real in a tarantino movie he killed hitler in inglorious bastards because he wanted to so reality doesn't even enter into it it's it's uh, you know i don't think he he any disrespect i think but it's a tarantino film it's all that liquid Damn. history
0: But in Tarantino's mind, that if the bastards had existed, there is a chance that they could have killed Hitler. (laughs) This is his justification for that move. I mean, Stephen, I mean, what's your thoughts on obviously this this move? Because I mean, I saw, looking at the footage, I thought, that's a really spot on imitation of Bruce Lee. You know, how he holds himself, how he acts and stuff. Um, Obviously, the, the deep elements of the character can be debated. But I mean, Stephen, what do you obviously think of it? I mean, do you think, you sort of siding with Shannon or you sort of like think that the whole thing's just been blown up to create a controversy because, you know, it's a Tarantino movie. You've got to have something to complain about.
2: Well, I think, um, I think it is probably just blown up to something to talk about to get more people to go and watch the film. I think I'm, I'm, I'm snickle enough to believe that. <laughs> um, I so I haven't, so I haven't, I haven't seen the film. So I'm, i can't, I don't know what it is, but, but Tom's quite right. This is inside a Tarantino universe. This isn't Bruce Lee. This is, this is Tarantino's version of Bruce Lee. Yeah. This is, this is not a biopic. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a drama. So, okay. Now, if someone started slagging off your father, whether or not he was your payday or you view that 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 um that you were slagging off your father whether or not you knew him very well blah 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 um of course that's going to be something worth whinging about but i do sense that there is a there is a, a commercial aspect to this um on the other hand i've seen th- 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 there's a danger of deifying people anyway so bruce lee who he is, and the and the limited amount of films he had, and how important he is to Asian American culture, and indeed to to Hong Kong cinema as well. You know, we, we do deify him, yeah. The same way we see through Jackie Chan's personality defects. <laughs> um, we we um, you know th- th- these are important people, and we put them up on a pedestal. And I think there's a bit of that, but. I haven't, I haven't seen this portrayal, but if I think about how he was portrayed, and I'm thinking there's a whole slew of Itman Man films, weren't there, a few, uh, five, six years ago. I think it's the one, the Herman Yao one with Anthony Wong, as, um, I'm pretty sure there's a, there's a little moment with Bruce Lee getting his training from Ip Man, and, um, he was a little jerk. And it was the first time that I'd sort of seen it where it wasn't this and you know, a oh he's so cool and oh and he's the greatest thing since sliced bread and isn't he amazing for all sort of reasons. Yeah, sure he is. Sure the, 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 the Bruce Lee that's shot up on the um on the silver screen might be that person, but it doesn't mean that the the real person wasn't a jerk. And I I probably suspect he was. <laughs> but uh, yeah. frankly Frankly, this is uh, this is this is this is just about selling papers. This is about selling clicks. This is about getting people to go and see the film. Yeah.
1: It, it, it's funny. Uh, I've read just about everything on Bruce Lee, and uh, to, I can't think of anything that didn't refer to him as cocky.
0: Oh, and I can mean, hardly imagine that he wouldn't be. you think you're like the best fighter yeah, of, of your field.
1: Just the um, idea of saying I'm going to make my own martial art has enough ego in it to choke a horse.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, didn't he like raise a controversy for the fact he was teaching martial arts to Westerners as well?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And his whole thing was was about you know borrowing and not having a written curriculum and you know this kind of thing. So I, I don't know. I mean. I, but I, I agree about the deification. There are people that, that even within the JKD Foundation, this is – JKD, by definition, doesn't have a, a dogma or a curriculum. It's you take what you think you can use and you throw away what you don't think you can use. So everything gets stratified. Even Bruce warned about that in the water speech about things getting codified into a – and becoming just another example of the classical mess. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, I think the whole legacy itself has been sort of, it, I mean, it's been Bodrum. I mean, he's the only actor I can think of who has his own line of exploitation films with the bruce exploitation movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, it, as I said, I always thought that Jackie Chan was this almost saintly figure until I started hanging out with Stephen and Kim and they started filming all the bloody scandal rags of what he's been up to. So, uh, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. you know, sometimes a little naivety goes a long way.
1: <laughs> yeah but there's, there's, there's,
2: there's a difference isn't there between the the man or the woman the, the person and what they might represent yeah and they always see yeah. they always say you know, don't meet the don't meet your heroes they've all yeah. got feet of clay yeah and i, I I'm, I'm pretty happy having 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 two bruce lees around that's fine i mean yeah i mean it's
0: it's a it's a frustrating situation. It's almost as frustrating as the fact that Criterion announced sleeve number 1000, which is of course is going to be the Godzilla Shower years. No UK release again. So, you know, thanks guys. And uh, I love the helpful response of, oh, buy a, buy a multi-region Blu-ray player, so that's what? £142 for the player, then you got to pay another £100 on top for the Criterion set, plus another, what, £50 to import it, and then when Customs hold it up, you've got to pay them £50, so... Yeah. Can we just... If you're going to release things over here, Criterion, you know, release everything. Don't just hold bits and pieces. It's just really annoying. Especially for people like myself who just, like, have this Pavlovian uh, response to anything with the word Godzilla in it. (laughs) Um, But tonight we're going to be talking about Lone Wolf and Cub. Uh, This is, as I said, it's a series of Shambara films. Uh, This first film... Sort of Vengeance, released in 1972. Um, over for a lot of Westerners, though, you probably would have seen this combined with the second film, Baby Car at the River Styx, um, released as Shogun Assassin, uh, which yourself, yourself, Tom, you actually covered uh, back on episode mm-hmm. 187 of the Post Material podcast, so um, you can obviously go check that out. Um, if you're obviously not familiar with the series. Um, it's set in the Edo period, and we here we have a disgraced former executioner by the name of o- Ogami Ido. And I'm going to just apologize in advance that I'm probably going to screw up a lot of surnames and because it's obviously being a Japanese film, and Japanese is hard to read. Um, but the film is also directed by Kinji Mizumi.
1: Yeah. And... I love this guy so much. When you look at his IMDb, it's bananas. <laughs> Like his first film was a Tonga Sazen film that Tonga Sazen is this lost Chambara series. There's about eight or ten of them, and they're great. I mean out of the box, he was doing this. But when you look even deeper and you see he did some Sleepy Eyes of Death movies, which are the also the bomb that no one ever talks about. He did some Zadawichi films. Um, he did all of the Lone Wolf films. He did some Hanzo the Razor films. Yeah, that guy's. That's one of those guys that you just start at year one and just click them off, like Miyake, right? There's just so much good stuff here.
0: Yeah, I think it's always great when you find a director whose filmography's got that sort of depth and the interesting sort of tells there. Miyake, <laughs> okay, I'm not sure. It's- one of those directors, because there's a lot of Drek in there. So I think we covered on our last episode.
1: Um,
0: yeah. When, we, certainly when you dive into like the outlaw period and certainly after that period, he's, he's I mean, he, when he produces good films, they're, they're great. But when he produces bad, it's just weird.
1: But you know, I think that that part, the thing that about Miyake is that it's that it's each of the, even the good films and the bad films, they all go into this script scope when you look at the breadth of what that guy does he can literally do anything um, so I think those those weekend Yakuza films that clearly it's like I got some black suits I got some guns let's make a movie I think they're important because it shows like that's just winging it that's just that guy I can do no wrong I'm so excited for this new movie that he has coming out I forget the title it is off the top of my head but yeah I love that guy
0: I mean, a lot of people said that oh, when it comes to Shogun Assassin*, that it's really just, uh, a greatest hits uh, clip show of basically taking the parts of uh, the first film and then the majority of the second film. But all they seem to take from sort of *Vengeance*. It only really dawned on me when I was we watching it this time is the fact that all they take is the flashback sequences and they cut away all the main story of this film. And it's really surprising the fact that even though it's the first film in the series, it's not really an origin story as such, as all the origins for this character are all told through about about five or six flashback, flashback sequences as he's traveling along the road to hell as he views it. And basically, Ogami Eto is this disgraced executioner, um, and he was like the shogun's right-hand man, and the shogun is, uh, is gone kind of mad. They say that his mind's infected with devils, so, you know, like Trump. Um, <laughs> and he's now... Sort of forced to go to the countryside with his three-year-old son Diego, and uh, he pushes. He's just, as I said, he's a samurai for hire, and um, there's the series of films to see him basically traveling for this land and killing a lot of people along the way.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I I do want to go back a little bit. The the executioner for Seppuku, super important. It's like your 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 trusted friend or your or a, like your best man at your wedding, um, and the idea being that once you uh, put your, the blade into your stomach and pull across you, to look up and angle your neck out, so that that executioner can take your head. It's a sort of fail safe, <laughs> for want of a better word. But it meant that 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 guy had to be aces. Like he he sat there and and practiced cut after cut after cut after cut and, and is kind of renowned as this badass samurai right because the shogun decide like in an official capacity that's what you're going to do so i think that's super important to know why like he doesn't just pull this stuff out of the air when he starts killing people <laughs> killing people on the road on the roadway you know it's it's a uh, it, it, it's that whole dynamic is is really wild. they they it was a big problem if for example the person that is committing suicide if they fell onto their back, they thought it was unseemly. They want the head to come off and then to drop forward. Kind of interesting
0: okay. And Stephen we I mean, obviously I have to ask you what your sort of feelings of the of this character because of Gami he's not a traditional sort of samurai warrior he's kind of like this portly guy he's very unkempt and unshaven and not to mention the fact he's pushing this bloody baby car through through feudal japan um so i mean how did you obviously find this character because he's not as I said, he's not big on personality he just it's sort of like a, a badass for hire who does bad things to bad people
2: maybe i'll start with why i chose this film <laughs> okay because that will, will bring me back better as a story um I thought I'd seen this film before and it turned out I hadn't, but I have seen others in the series. I just hadn't seen this one, but actually I came to Lone Wolf and Cub, not through film, but probably before I'd even really been aware of Asian cinema. And so back in the, I want to say the 1980s when I was 16, 17 years old and graphic novels, uh, Japanese manga had started seeping their way into us culturally is that my friends had sort of first comics, reprints of the 1970s manga on which this was based on. And so that was probably my first exposure to the idea of a samurai. So this 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 image of this guy and his um, his baby in a in a pram baby cart have have been burnt into my early beginnings of interest in foreign cultures that make and I went back and had to look at um, one of them, as uh, in, in preparation for, for for talking about it today, and the actual drawings in the original manga are of a much more heroic man, <laughs> uh, 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 whereas what we have here is a is a is a middle aged guy that. Does not does not tick many of the heroic boxes in terms of square jaws and stuff like that, but at the same time, this guy, the, the, um, the actor, yeah, what's, his uh, what's his name,
1: Tom Saburo Wakayama.
2: Yeah, I mean he's got gravitas, he's got weight, and I think that actually as to what you were saying, Tom, about his job is as, as 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 an executioner Well, It's more they call it a second, don't they? He's he's like yeah. a trust. The, the the trusted person who's going to help that he's part it's, it's a suicide he's a sister he's a suicider sister is <laughs> what mm-hmm. he is but it's he's not he shouldn't maybe you know the, the, the point is maybe he shouldn't be a heroic square-jawed character or be someone that's dressed in black and evil and with a with a twiddly mustache because he's bad but actually he probably should be more like your favorite uncle <laughs> or something like yeah. that. Because of the nature of the job he's got, and so some ways i don't think he was the original person that was um was destined for this role. I think it was the guy that plays the toichi in the in the original movies but this this uh thomas thomas Saburo sort of begged, begged for the role if i if if my reading was right, but I think it works brilliantly because he confounds your expectation of what you think that character is and therefore helps blur the lines about what his is he good is is he bad Mm -hmm. because in the opening scene in this film he does something that um well it's it's irredeemable isn't it um he he basically kills a six-year-old child um Mm -hmm. and then this character then we're meant to back him moving forward for the next six films and indeed 28 volumes or 35 volumes of a manga. So yeah, I, I, I just thought it was really interesting. So it was a long roundabout way of talking there about how he doesn't match what you'd expect, but actually it really kind of works.
1: You know, I, I, I do want to say that, um, uh, well, first of all, Tom Saburo Wakayama is the younger brother of Shintaro Katsu, who played Zatoichi and Hanzo the Razor. So, so these guys, and all of their sword work is legit. It's not Charlie's Angels, where it's all cutting and <laughs> whatever. Like those guys knew they they knew how to handle a sword. Um, but I also think that Ogami has his own sense of right and wrong. He Killing the 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 child is uh, uh, that was the the shogun right the shogun's yeah.
2: son yeah the, 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 well he was he was a he's he one of the Dynamics, wasn't he he was one of the young lords of, of right. one of the one of the um, shogunate's but
1: so that's like, that. like that's pretty standard back in those days you want to kill off your competition and, and that kind of thing so within that world some of those choices he makes are are are, are may seem questionable but on the other hand he takes the in a later film i think of the second one he takes the booty booty whipping torture for for that slave girl right? oh
2: indeed but it's all about it's uh, uh, within within his world this is this is the way of the world and the and the film mm-hmm. goes to great Lengths. But that's because I guess that's because the audience initially was 1970s Japanese people who right. were in a complete, you know, they, they're in a post 1945 world where Japan was a very different place than it had been even 20 years previously.
1: Well, at the time, you have to remember that before Chambara, there was the Judy Geki, right, the, the yep. television costume dramas that, that they Japanese people grew up with. And then when you get into the 70s and you start seeing the beginning of like, you know, what we classically think of as 70s cinema, it's not a it's not a big leap to suddenly put a wah-wah pedal behind Zatoichi as he walks down the road. Right. That everything sounds like Shaft.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, and that's what makes me love it. You know, I, I can do the the stoic stuff, but um i love the slider stuff by the time we get to razor hanzo boy that's just that's just freeball <laughs>
0: and i mean it's safe to say there's a world of difference between these films and then we look at like the kurosawa samurai movies which is all sort of like the highbrow end of the things here we have like the pop samurai movies and i said the same with like Hanzo the razor it's it's a very different sort of world and certainly when we look at the world which these films are set in it's a world very much of like chaos and violence, um, where everyone's very quick to quick to anger and very quick to violence, especially and the it no one thinks anything of like killing five or six guys at one time and everyone dies with like hose pipes of blood, which I think is what appealed to me the most when I see was seeing this like coming up as a young sort of like kung fu fan and you see like uh, we have things like the battles, the battles especially in the second one where you've got like the lords of death and obviously having seen big trouble little china you can instantly see where carpenter's got his reference point from and you see these like three guys and one's got like wolverine claws and the Studded fists and other guys got clubs and they're just laying these horrific murders on people and uh as i said as a young kid this is these are like the greatest movies ever because it's not as deep violence it's just so over the top that it's got that sort of like monty python comical edge to it so you don't feel as affected as if you're watching like something super realistic which is something that always appealed to me about the series and the fact it never seems to take itself seriously even though from the outset it seems like a very grounded series would you say
1: I would yeah Yeah. I mean once again it's that that once you buy into that like okay he's going to carry this kid around it then everything else is played legit and Mm -hmm. uh, by the time we get to the female ninjas and (laughs) and all the rest of that it's like yeah I'm
0: I'm done. I'm in. I mean, that's the problem with, uh, with this series. I mean, everyone tends to skip over sort of Vengeance and just go straight to the second film. And yeah. I think so, the, it's got more over-the-top sort of elements. This one sort of like, still kind of on the uh, ground of being just a very traditional sort of samurai, samurai movie, even though there are some... It's, it's weird, the things like, the violence doesn't shock me, but when we have moments like um, at the start where we have the The woman who's gone insane because um, she gave away her child and the child died and it's now like driven her insane and the fact that she has to have Diego breastfeed from her to sort of like calm her down. Those are the moments which shocked me more than any sort of the violence and gore in these Mm -hmm. movies. Just these uh, moments of like, as I said, it's just sort of like fake,
2: fake. But but what what was that what was that about? I mean, I, just, I was writing down notes I was watching the film. But, um, well, that moment was just like, apart from seeing a boob, all right, I get that, <laughs> and 70s, you didn't see many of them on the TV, but, um, and it was to show that Daigoro was hungry and that his father maybe couldn't care for him fully because there was no woman around, but bloody convenient to walk down the street and that there's um, a... Um, there, 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 there's a there's a woman with milk that's just lost her child and needs a desperate desperate urge to uh, feed. I mean, it was just what? And it took me it took me out of the movie just for just for five minutes, quite early on. As the banner
0: says, "Child and expertise for rent." The child is he, he's happy to rent his child
2: out to serve what, a what, service. But what's the market for suck- <laughs> suckling, ch- children? I mean, seriously. <laughs> I, I I understand about wet nurses. I understand the market for the other yeah. side of the equation. <laughs> yes. Um, it, was, it was just a bit weird, but I think that, that that all kind of plays into the into the whole series of films, right? It does go, there are batshit crazy things, and they're not always about who they're stabbing with swords.
0: Yeah, but, but you've yeah, yeah. got to take into account the fact that this is a world where he gives his three-year-old son a choice between a ball and a sword, if he if the child chooses the ball he will kill his his child so that it goes with his his wife who's been recently murdered by ninjas or if Diego goes to the sword that he joins his father on I said on the road to hell because uh, this being the 70s and exploitation we have to over dramatize everything so
1: but you know, at, at a certain point daigo is is complicit he, I mean he's there's a scene when um Band, bandits or ninja have him over a well and they're going to drop the kid into a well if, if Ito, uh, Ogami Ido doesn't give up. And the kid looks at him and, and Ido says, you know, you're going to go to your mom now, basically. And Dairo kicks his sandal off so that the dad can hear how long it takes to hit the water. So, like, you got that much time to, to kill these <laughs> buggers because... I'm going to be in the water, and and in fact, as the scene plays out, he does, and and the payoff is is worth every penny. Um, so he's a part of it. He's counting his father's kills on the road, right? He's our our avatar, the audience's avatar, as as we see the world, right? But he's also complicit in it because he's doing. In many oh. ways, I mean, there's a scene in the second one where he slaps the side of the baby cart and impales someone on a spear.
2: <laughs> so, oh, absolutely, this movie. So, in um, in Atlanta uh, Demons, which is the fourth one, which is the one I this is where I came to the movies, bizarrely, because that's what I do. I start at number four or six. I mean, he has a whole whole third of the film to himself, yeah. <laughs> um, um. Uh, because and, and and now knowing about the rest of the films that that's almost like the cumulation of what he has learned moving you know on, on this well, journey.
1: Remember when he he stands on the road and he and he holds that stick the same way his dad holds his sword yeah. and that guy's like oh that guy that's that's that guy that kid is frightening yeah that was awesome. Yeah
2: yeah so, we need we need a new adventures of Lone Wolf where it's DiGoro well, grown up yeah,
1: and, uh, Dark Horse Comics at one point had a series where it was in the future and they also had a series that followed the life of Daigoro i I want to say for a while they there. must
2: they must have done because Dark Horse would fleece yeah. that as much as they can it's a story that deserves telling, isn't
1: it? Oh, absolutely. I think there's it's compelling. You know, look at hard boiled. It's compelling having a guy doing violence while he's holding a baby. You know? Yeah. Yeah,
2: don't we, do don't, so, we we don't talk about hard boiled anymore on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I do, this, uh I mean just a recap
0: for anyone who didn't listen to our hard boiled episode. Um I said said Stephen with with the John Woo trilogy, you want to watch it. So you got to watch um Better Tomorrow. Then the killer, and then bold and of course Stephen and watches Hardbald, and and just didn't appreciate the subtle filmmaking and poetic bullet ballet that is that movie, um, and just like you know this intense friendship between the two men can share. So yeah, we agree
2: to disagree on that one. <laughs> <laughs> nah, just uh, but... a lot what was going on. I talk- i just thought the story was shit <laughs> but, <laughs> i have to say though uh but
0: i mean when Diego in this movie as as the film's gone it becomes like this maggie simpson of of samurai where he's supposed to be like this incapable child yet he has moments where he's more than capable of holding his own like as you said i think it's in land of demons where he's surrounding the field of fire and he prepares himself for death because mm-hmm. this is the oath that him and his father have taken. The fact that they're going to continue on this road, and that they've accepted death, and they're going to live like demons. And it's it's so bizarre the fact that we've got a three-year-old child who fully understands this this complex oath that obviously his father has chosen to take. I mean, he's chosen to become a Ronin, and even when we get to the last film, the story is still not complete. Um, it, it gets, I think, to the most outlandish point that it possibly can, where we've got. This character essentially slaughtering a whole army single-handedly, <laughs> which is just brilliant.
1: When the Gatling gun comes out of the baby cart, I was like, all right, come on. <laughs> so good, though. <laughs> oh,
0: so- yeah. I mean, I was surprised how much that is toned down in this first movie. I mean, you obviously see bits and pieces of this baby cart. Cause the baby cart itself is, is like this Q-like design where... It's not only a mode of transport, but it's got all these hidden weapons in it. And as the films go on, it seems to develop more weapons. As you said, it's got the Gatling guns in the front. And in this one, it's got, like, the handlebars, which come off and form, like, a spear, which comes in really sort of handy. And certainly when we get to the sort of the, the end where he's been hired to, obviously, kill these, uh, kill these men that are sort of, like, taking over this local spa. And... He enters the air and he's forced to give up his sword and they clearly don't know what he's got, like a small armoury hidden in this baby cart. But the whole sort of sequence itself is very sort of... I'd say it's very sort of traditional in its sort of concept. There's nothing too outlandish. I mean, yes, we get a locked head here and there and certainly goes on. The violence becomes a little more comedic, like with limbs being locked up and stuff. It's all really fun stuff. I mean, how do we find the action scenes in this one? Because they are obviously a little more strained than the ones which in the later films. Uh, but how do we sort of find the ones in this, this initial entry? I
2: really enjoy, I really enjoyed the sort of the last, the last act in the spa, the, the, when the, when the baby cart starts becoming, uh, a, a conduit for, for various bits of weaponry. And I enjoyed that. I really did quite like, so there's quite an early scene, um, when he's, um, uh, fighting the guy in the water and it yeah. feels realistic.
1: There's good tactics there. Draws them into the water. By the, by the,
2: that clan head. Oh, my God. Oh. Yeah. So, so, you know telling The guy that's explained to me what's going on in Lone. You know, I, I can see with my eyes. This, this mm. is cinema. I don't need this described to me. In, <laughs> oh, drawn out. Over that character. Oh, <laughs> oh, can't stand the Shogun.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, my word. And, and that kind of ruins the first half of the film for me. Seriously. Mm. Um,. Because he's literally explaining what's going on on the screen, and also acting as an explaining some of the more complicated historical aspects as well. I get, I get that. I get the reason he's mansplaining to me. But um, that, but the stuff in the water, he's, he's explained to us why that. Oh my god, he's got in the water, and that's um, or well, uh, 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 Ogami's skills are going to outweigh his straight away. Well, a clever move. I, you know, I just wish it wasn't explained to me. But I think it's. It's it's really interesting because it's not hyper uh, realistic. It feels realistic. Is that is that fair to say?
1: Yeah. I mean, other than the ridiculous amounts of blood that gets
2: oh, well, blood, paint, whatever the, you want to call it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the the I I love the like it's very effective. You know, he he's. He just—you dis- believed that he could dispatch these five guys in the same way you d- believed in the Atochii films that he could level a town, you know. I yeah, I think there's the, a little dis- suspension of disbelief there. I think.
0: Especially I think the- also, it's his approach, though. It's not like he's doing like these super fantastical moves. He's not like, you know, having these fantasy sort of elements with his swordplay. play. It's a very sort of traditional sort of soul play. Mm-hmm. he's doing is does he because he's obviously going into this fight more skilled than the guys he's going up against so basically just from what you can what it looks like they're just basically like giving a sword and think that's all the advantages they need against this guy not you need any sort of skill or to weld it so
1: yeah everybody's basically around him and they attack him one at a time all right
0: but that, cool. that's the thing it's basically like martial arts master versus 13 year old kid who's bought a samurai sword off the internet that's
2: basically <laughs> what every opponent he fights yeah. in this movie is yeah, <laughs> but, but there's a, there's, a, there's an economy to his style, and yeah. I think that's what I that's what I like uh, if you really could do this and i think i think tom you were kind of alluding to this earlier you know this guy can really handle a sword yeah you mm-hmm. know it's not about it's not about flashing it around and doing clever tricks and not slicing off your own limbs it's about it, it, it's about you've got a weapon and you have been trained to use it and you know the you know the most effective way of using that weapon without wasting too much of your own energy and i got a sense of oh, i got a sense God. of that realism from that
1: mm. Yeah, and it, it, much like his brother with the Zatoichi films, it's like it's peaceful. Violence happens. The sword comes out. People die. The sword gets put back away, and everyone's like, "What was that?" Uh, and that's that speaks to your way you were saying about the economy of motion. There's not a lot of braggadocio there. There's not a lot of what I call the monkey dance. That's not a lot of threats. And I'll do this and that. It's like you cross the line here's my sword and now it's back. And that's, yeah, that's very cool.
0: I mean, after, after asking in terms of like historical context, am I right in saying that when you had uh, two sort of samurai engaged in battle, it would normally be that by the end of it, one person would be dead or uh, certainly at the stage where they weren't going to last much longer. These If you got in a, fu- in a, fu- a fight that you were going in it with the intention to do harm. It wasn't the case of like when we look at sort of we'll other fighting cells so such as like uh, with like rapier, rapier. and and, mm-hmm. and those mm-hmm. sorts of uh, sort of swords that you have the opportunity to sort of beat your opponent in a duel and to humiliate your opponent with. When it comes to obviously with the samurai sword, it's designed just to to cause
1: harm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would say the and the idea that. Um... I mean, it's three—it's three feet of razor sharp steel that doesn't break. I mean, it's whereas Western blades will break when they bend. Japanese swords don't. So I forgot your question. Sorry. <laughs> I just—I just, I just
0: about to say. I mean, do you feel that the the sort of sword sword fighting that would obviously this weapon to be used for is represented sort of realistically on the film. Yes, I mean obviously the violence aspect is exaggerated for effect, but the actual sort of fighting style mm-hmm. um, do you feel that it sort of carried across or would we if we were looking at this in a more historical sort of context, would we be looking at a very sort of different sort of fighting style than the one we see here?
1: Yeah, the thing you said about about causing injury, you have to also remember this is the fifteenth century. So even a gut cu- a cut across the gut, that's a mess sepsis right you're not gonna there's no antibiotics there's no if you survive your death your life is over you're not a samurai anymore right you don't there's not a lot of one-armed samurai going around um uh, it's
0: a two-handed sword so it's gonna be <laughs> difficult
2: to wave it around
1: no, but musashi used two swords a uh, horde sword one hand right the double sword technique um the battle of Ganryu island right the big yeah. Yeah, you ever see the Samurai trilogy? That was that's another good one. You need, if you haven't guys haven't checked that one out, that one's great. But I think yeah, it's it's it, it dances around stuff about like the roles samurais had and the roles peasants had, and once you cross that line into being a Ronin, like how tough your life could be. Um, yeah, I think it was within the context of the spurty aforementioned sprouting blood. I think it was fairly accurate.
0: And I, I think it certainly helps the fact you obviously, as you said, already, Wakiyama, mean, he was a skilled martial artist, certainly especially with swords. Um, and I think that really sort of helps the film. I mean, it's not, as I said, we're not looking at some guy waving a sword around here. We're going to see someone who clearly knows what they're doing with it. Well, look at, um,
1: look at John Wick. Look at Man From Nowhere. These are people, these are highly trained martial artists. And it's like, yeah, it helps sell it.
0: Yeah. I don't, I think my favourite uh, quote from Kilboa is that when Uma Thurman was first given the sword, Chiba didn't want to stand near her. Yeah. <laughs> he said he wasn't overly keen being anywhere near her when she had the samurai sword in her hand initially. and Towards the end of the film, he was a little more comfortable. But... Right.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see what
0: else we haven't uh, sort of covered here. Uh, obviously, this is a... It's, it's an extensive series. Um, there is... What, there's what six films after this after this one that
2: and then obviously we've got the books as well.
0: My I, think the, I
2: think there's six in total, but yeah. they're all made in a really short time frame. Um, I want yeah. to say, yeah, the
1: IMDb, "Sort of Justice," "Baby Cart of the River Sticks," "Baby Carte Hades," and "Sort of Justice." That that could strike that. Those three were made in '72. Um and then In the Land of Demons were made in seventy three. Why am I missing the other two?
2: Yeah, seventy no, seventy um the first four were made in seventy two, the fifth one 73 and the final one 74 but that is probably really That's two years, isn't it? Yeah, less than two yeah. years, really. Yeah.
1: Um
2: and, and 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 we see that quite a lot. I don't, I don't know anywhere else where we see that but we could probably all name a number of series in Japanese cinema in that 1970s period yeah. where they, they made sequels and follow-ups that really were sequels and follow-ups. We go to Hong Kong, right, the number two film in a series often, hasn't got the same bloody plot, uh, the same actors in it. It's just a title. But this, I think of this, I think of Sato- Satoichi. I think of, um, uh, the Lady Snowblood films. I think of the, um, female prisoner scorpion films they're all made in a very quick (laughs) um with the same people in them so there's no like oh the fourth one in the series has got um, i mean these these ones even had the same director um i mean where else in the world has that ever happened where you know and these are all solid length feature films they're not they're not short movies or anything yeah my
0: money the even ones are the best ones in the series i don't know if anyone agrees with that theory or not but when I look at all the even entries in the in the film, so they're normally the best ones, the ones and they have moments in them. Normally the finales are pretty good, but the guessing there can be a bit tedious in places, but I find, like, obviously, when we look at, like... Baby Cut, the River Stakes Sticks, obviously, being an absolute standout, and then... Um... Oh, it's... I've lost track of what the... What comes up was the fourth one is here. Um... So yeah, and then obviously we've got uh, Baby Cut to Hades, which is free, and then Baby Cut in Peril, which is the one with the tattooed ninja lady, which is pretty cool. Um, then Lords of demons is pretty ho-hum, and uh, then we obviously have White Heaven and Hell, which, I, I mean, it's it's samurai sort of playing snow, which is something that you don't always get. Um, and it's kind of bizarre that when they put out the box set for this, they... they Never seem to include sort of vengeance. They just put Shogun Assassin in as in the number one slot. With this film, I mean, obviously compared to Shogun Assassin, which obviously has the soundtrack to it, has a very sort of like um, electric sort of score to it. Do we kind of miss it when we look at sort of vengeance, which is a very sort of quiet movie in comparison?
2: Well, I, I, I uh, yeah, I've, I've never seen Shogun Assassin, so I don't. Well, I, I don't know Shogun Assassin as the film. What I know it as is as 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 um. As found footage in other things, so like so there is this album, and um, I guess it's also used in Kill Bill Part uh, Part Two, isn't it? Um, so it's it's it's. I know it as a as a as a cultural touchstone. I don't know it as a movie, so I couldn't really compare it with um with the first two movies. I, I it's dubbed, mate. It's not my cup of tea. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Tom, I mean, did you? I mean, did you
0: ever see Mr. in... Mean... Which gets we get go by uh, W. Michael Lewis and Mark Lindsay, um, which is kind of kind of cool, kind of electric, it has, especially when we look at Diago's voiceover, which is obviously added as well, which lays a lot of sort of the framework and the and and the groundwork for the film. I mean, it really sort of comes into sort of prominence there. Whereas in this original version, we sort of have the Little Wolf and Cub guitar opening and closing, and uh, that's about it. There's not much else in terms of in terms of soundtrack here, but I mean, do you prefer these movies quiet or with a bit of music to sort of add the atmosphere there?
1: I, I don't know. I think the electronic score, it all makes it feel weird and kind of funky. And I think it's a great, it serves the movie well as an entry point. But once you've seen Shogun Assassin, then go see, see the rest of them and you'll appreciate the traditional score.
0: And obviously with Shogun Assassin, we mentioned numerous times on the podcast already, the fact it's this, it's the flashback sequences of so sort of vengeance and then the meat of uh, a baby cut the rose sticks. Do you wish that they'd done, given a similar treatment to the other films in the series, like given them that sort of voiceover, given the electric score and uh, given them the same sort of treatment? I mean, obviously Shogun Assassin was banned, especially here in the UK. I mean, it was banned in 83 as part of the video Nasties, um, I believe, which Gave it such a more made it such an easier film to uh, market when they finally released it in 2000, along with like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Clockwork Orange, all the films that we had got for years with you guys in the States, it obviously had. And uh, yeah, I mean, they, they released it with a wonderful tagline Meet the greatest team in the history of mass slaughter.
1: Yeah,
0: so yeah, I mean, do you do you kind of feel they were sort of like feel that they could have done a similar treatment for the other films in the series or? you happy they just left them the hell alone uh,
1: I, I, I I think Shogun Assassin was a, like I say it was a good it, it snagged so many people in and maybe pointed them in the direction of, of the other films uh, but also some of the more obscure uh, films so um, but to have it done to 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 I don't know Purest me box at it. <laughs> um,
0: anything else uh, about this film that we want to discuss at all? Stephen, Tom? Um,
1: I, would, I just want to add one thing about Kenji Mizumi. 1969, he okay. did a movie called Devil's Temple um, starring Shintaro Katsu as a mad, lustful priest. Um, that's pretty fun. Again, the sleepy eyes of death stuff is the bomb... Um, Gumi Chronicles is another one that's really great all that Tangan Sazen stuff uh, I said Sleepy Eyes of Death yeah just good stuff also there's a film that's hard to find if you can find it it's early 60s it's called Ninja Hunt and it's got like legit ninja stuff
0: <laughs> cool Um, I mean one last final sort of point uh, just a uh bit of fan fan fiction here um if we were obviously going to put uh, kurosawa's boy um toshiro mifune up against uh shogun assassins ton wakirama who's going to come out on top here are we going to go with Ogami and beating out uh yujimbo or who do you think's mm-hmm. got sort of upper hand here i mean it's sort of rugged good looks against mm-hmm. Ofish looks <laughs> um who sort of like comes out on top? of these these Which, two sort of master oh, I, swordsmen?
1: I, I need I need to now now you got me going. Which okay. to Shiro Mafuni? Like
0: I'm just gonna. If, I'm gonna say you Jimbo because your okay. Jimbo is obviously on his own. You obviously, Samurai's got six other guys backing him well, up.
1: They view. did. They did a Zadoichi meets your, your Jimbo, right?
0: They did. Yeah, yeah.
1: and that was awesome. Um, I I got to go with Ogami. Just because I think that most of Mafuni's characters are are a little rough around the edges, and this guy at least was has some training.
2: Um, I'm going with Agami because um, it's quite clear in the role that he has. He is meant to be the best. Yeah, <laughs> <It's>, um, <laughs> yeah right, both both gone down the path of the Ronin, but um, you know he's meant to have had that training. He has got that role on merit, one assumes. Um, therefore, yeah, I'm going to go with Ogami.
0: I think I'm going to have to go you guys. I mean, obviously, Ogami's uh, more straight to the point sort of fighter, whereas with Funay, he's often more about playing the mind games. About um, especially in like terms of Jimbo, he's he's playing the sides against each other. Mm-hmm. So whereas Ogami, he just goes in, he gets the job done. I mean, right. he uses slightly underhanded tactics because I mean he hides a bunch of weapons, but <laughs> I mean he he gets the job done. Um, and he, I mean, he's backed up by a, a delightful little kid, which I guess is no one's going to assume there's capable of horrible things as well. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, further watching, if you obviously like this, I mean, we've obviously done a bunch of, you've listed a bunch of styles as we've gone through this already. But uh, if somebody, if somebody's always listened to this and enjoyed sort of Vengeance, uh, where's the sort of further watching, what, what direction are you going to point them in, guys?
1: I'm going to say, do the Zadoichis, there's there's 26 of them, so that'll keep you a while. Uh, if you can find the Sleepy Eyes of Death, it's, it's got a different vibe on it than some of these, these other, because it was made previous to that explosion, that pop culture explosion thing. Um, and then if you just went rollicking, good, fun, Hanzo the Razor. It's like, Kate, it's like Samurai James Bond
0: with an extraordinarily large penis. Yeah. Which, oh, God, those films are so stupid. I mean, is it the first one where he's, like, beating his... Yeah, his, of course it's stupid. ...fits with a yeah. stick?
1: But the idea, I just love, like, the assault on the house, where his whole house is, is essentially tricked out like Ogami's baby car, right? <laughs> he's got drawn <laughs> bows shooting down hallways. <laughs> it's just so... so I don't know that I would embrace the word "dumb." It's it's plenty ridiculous, though. But it's it's good and kind of sleazy fun.
0: Okay, Stephen, anything you would want to recommend with this one?
2: Um, yeah. Um, Tom's already kind of mentioned them. Um, the 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 samurai films. Um uh i think like a duel at gano island and then that's the third one isn't it and and the other two so the toshiro Mifune films um again it's a nice set of three um chambara films <laughs> um i think i think the the the, the scene you know, or we could go with um we could go with any one of a number of kurosawa films you in again you've made jimbo seven samurai um, all, all meditations on a theme, I guess. Um, you know, the, 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 the lone highly trained man with, with, with a deadly weapon on their own. They're like Westerns. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. I think that's fair to say. That. I, I, on an old uh, night crew, we did a discussion with Phil Nutman about the similarities between the American Western and the Samurai. You know, you mentioned the Samurai trilogy, I'm gonna also stick my nose in there and say uh, there's a book called Musashi by Ieji Yoshikawa. It's kind of the Gone with the Wind of Japan, and it tells that same story. And it's right. It's, it's awesome.
2: We're always up for books here. <laughs> it's, it's a good, good, good thing. But yeah, uh, I think I think I think you're absolutely right, Tom. I think it's um that there is that link the the you know, the way the Western yearns for a a, a, an early america and also america that's on the on the cusp of something new Mm -hmm. Um, the samurai movies yearn for that edo pre-tokyo era um of japan um and it's about it's about a, a world that's about to change. So, you know, well, there might not have been Gatling guns in the 15th century, but there was a Japan <laughs> that was about to change, um, historically. So I think, I see those, um, i see it's very similar genres. Yeah. Cool. Um,
0: as for myself, I'm still obviously on the pop samurai sort of trend. I've got a couple of animes for you to check out. First up is obviously Ninja Scroll.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, absolutely fantastic. And it real sort of stand out. And it's something we like the likes of Akira and of the show is, just an anime that's never really aged. It still looks fantastic now, and you can obviously watch its knockoff of sorts, injury Resurrection, which ends on a really frustrating cliffhanger, much like oh. Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings trilogy, which uh, thought it would be a real good idea to end in the middle of the second book, but never mind. Um, obviously, if you want some of little more modern, you can check out the Azumi movies, and you can also check out Lady Snowblood as well. Uh, both really fun pop samurai movies there and I think as I said the, they deliver on sort of like the gore and the thrills that uh, you have in this one and finally the one I would throw out there as well would be Takashi Miike's First in Assassins um, just for the end finale alone, the end fight in that movie is just absolutely yeah. incredible and it's it's not the same sort of uh, methodical and highbrow sort of thinking that obviously when we look at Kurosawa's movies that people uh, tend to assume samurai movies alike, it's, as I said it's just downright down and gritty and bloody and it's just so much fun mm-hmm. um, but this brings us obviously to the end of another edition of the Asian Cinema Film Club we hope you've enjoyed listening as always uh, before we go I do obviously have to read out an email which is always kind of a shock Shock when that light comes on but um, we got an email from Phil who says uh, just wanted to let you guys know that I love the Asian Cinema Film Podcast well oh, thank you Phil um, I find myself desperately waiting for the next one as soon as I've listened to the latest one. I mean, going back, uh, going over the, some of the back catalog and be listening to some I've already listened to already. So, well, I hope you've been enjoying the show, Phil. When uh, you asked, uh, did Wood and Zoe have another podcast? No, we haven't had another podcast. She does have uh, the unrated cut over on the uh, London Horror Society. It's a video show that she's doing at the moment. She also has the Zoboa Shotgun podcast. Where she's looking at the history of extreme cinema and all the lovely grotesque cinema that uh, Zoe enjoys. Um, and uh, he also says that he's also been enjoying Stephen's Wheel of Ramblings podcast as well. And Stephen, you've got a new episode out uh, as of today, I'm writing
2: Sam. I had a new episode out this week, so again, fifteen minutes primer for world cinema. This episode, I go to Norway and look at a couple of films which are in styles which I'm not always a big fan of. So, I, but but I think I think work. Um, so a bit of fun. I look at Troll Hunter, which is a sort of found footage mockumentary, which is a bit of a, a bit of a laugh. And then on a more serious note, I look at the sort of continuous single shot take story of a Toya, 22nd of july which is about the, the the real life um terrorist attacks in norway in 2011 um really smartly done and that actually uses the continuous single take for immersive reasons which really work well rather than a director uh, wanking himself off so go listen
0: <laughs> a recommendation like that Who can resist? <laughs> Um, also on the network, we've uh, got new episodes of uh, Movies and Tea with myself and Kim. Uh, we just released our episode on Love, Death and Robots on uh, our big box set binge, where we went for the whole series. Uh, we also got the first episode of season three, which will be looking at the filmography of Sofia Coppola. So the first episode is going to focus on Her, Short Lick, The Start, and The Virgin Suicides, and that should be out as of uh, as of this episode coming out. Uh, but, Tom, uh, have you got anything you want to plug before we say goodbye to yourself?
1: Uh, no, just find me on social media. I'm on Facebook, uh, my website, uh, I'm on Twitter, all that stuff. Book should be out. I'm hoping the book will be to the printer or the uh, publisher by Halloween, and then it'll be hopefully out. For Christmas, but uh, if you go to my Amazon page, you can find the collections. You can find three um, for ninety nine cents each. A, um, they're collections of Carpentier interviews. There's a massive Neil Gaiman interview that we did, uh, and then no flesh shall be spared. No flesh shall be spared. Don't look back is the last thing, and then Tuxedo Junction comes up next.
0: Fantastic. Um, one other show just obviously I have to mention as well, um, Quentin Tarantino has got a three-episode podcast series out at the moment where he's talking about five films which influenced his uh, taste, and it's uh, pretty diverse. You've got to talk about Point Blank, uh, Valley Girl, and Boogie Nights, just to name three of the films uh, mentioned. It's a really interesting show, um, hosted with uh, film critic Amy, who certainly forgets me now, but it's available for all, usual podcast sources as well and definitely one worth checking out especially if you like listening to Stan Tua talk about cinema which with him planning to retire on his next film his 10th film which hopefully will be Kill Bill Volume 3 um and not Star Trek I really uh, hope that he goes back and does more the Rolling Stone Rolling Funder uh, sort of film school uh segments again because it'd be really good to just have more of him talking about film and film history so but um Thank you, as always, for listening, and uh, if you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe buttons, hit us up on uh, the social media, and uh, and uh, you know, definitely uh, let us know any thoughts on the show, let us know the films you want to be listening to, and thank you, of course, to Tom for coming on and talking to us about uh, the Bobcat and Pearl series, It's great having you on, man. Thanks, man. Yeah. Uh, we'll definitely find you something to talk about, well,
2: which I don't think would be too hard in the near future. <laughs> No, no. Big thanks, big, big thanks, Tom. That was really interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Will. Uh
0: On our next episode, uh, we uh, we had a couple of choices in the air, and uh, because my co seems to think I'm Anton Chiga, it's advice I flip a coin. So thanks for that, Stephen. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to be uh, looking at uh, something equally light as we're going to be heading to Vietnam for Eastern Condors with Sammo Hung kicking a whole lot of ass as he does his Rambo thing in a film which is. Equal Parts Rambo meets The Dirty Dozen. Um, So that one's got a new release coming out from Eureka, which is going to have the missing footage, uh, which we'll be talking about as well. But uh, yeah, on the next episode, join us as we'll be talking about Eastern Condors. But uh, until then, thank you uh, as always for listening and good night.
1: 昨日のことは忘れて昨日の跡を忘れ恋の呼び場が壊れる思いを車巡らさ